0: Greetings, Hokie Nation, and welcome to another episode of Terror Dome Talk. We're excited to be back with you for another week. I'm Jonathan Hagee, here again with Austin Eves. Austin, how's it going?
1: Jonathan, it's a great week here in southwest Virginia. The weather's finally taking a turn for the cold, just like we like it for football season. Uh, Hokie football is coming off a tough loss to Notre Dame in South Bend. Really close game there. Hokie basketball coming off a really big road win to open up ACC play against Clemson. First of Mike Young's hopefully long and illustrious career as a Hokie. Hokie wrestling with a huge upset over number nine Missouri. We're doing
0: great. Plenty of things to talk about and dive into and break down. We're excited here to get to those. Austin, getting into the game this weekend in South Bend, obviously heartbreak for the Hokies, heartbreak for Hokie Nation, not just from a final score standpoint, but the guys are out there fighting. You could tell that they're playing their tails off on both sides of the ball. getting you know, everything they had – Notre Dame's able to make some plays on that last drive. It was a long drive. They were able, you know, to kind of get a mix of some chunk plays, but also it was a very methodical drive where the Hokies had a couple chances there to put the game away on the uh, two fourth downs. Obviously not able to come up and, and, and get those stops when they needed them, but you still have to like the effort and a lot of what we saw from
1: the Hokies. Yeah, Jonathan, uh, looking back at it, you, you can't be too disappointed because this was a game that, one, doesn't count for much as far as this season's goals and what we're still able to accomplish. And, two, a game that a lot of people, like Jerry the King Lawler said, Notre Dame was going to throttle Virginia Tech on college game day on Saturday. I kind of wanted to pull him through the TV and give him a knuckle sandwich. But, you know, it was just an unrealistic expectation for a lot of people to think we were even going to be in this game. I knew going in, I think we said last week, there was no way that Notre Dame was going to cover the spread for this game. These guys came out and fought. Tech really put on a good showing. I mean, it was honest to God, save for that last drive, we're looking at a vintage Bud Boster defensive performance. Man, Di- Divine Diablo with a 98 yard fumble recovery for a touchdown. Rayshard Ashby coming up with a huge form tackle, sticking his helmet right on the ball, just like you're taught as a kid. It was a beautiful thing to
0: see in motion. Right. And, and before we dive deeper into that, to go back to Jerry the King Waller. Fun fact, he was actually Justin Fuente's neighbor when Je- when Coach Fuente uh, was the head coach at Memphis. He presented him a title belt after they won the A C title, and I think there was a story out there of him buying a Batmobile and dressing up as Batman and having the Fuente girls over. There's a whole thing. So I was kind of surprised to hear Jerry Lawler say that. Um, going back to the game, obviously Quincy Patterson gets the start. Everybody was anticipating Hendon Hooker. Um, it's announced right before the game that Quincy's going to start. Uh, You know, I don't really want to second guess the decision not to play Hendon because we are an ACC play. And like you said, the Notre Dame game is not an ACC game. From a national perception, obviously it's a huge game if if we're able to hold on and get that win. But Justin Fuente justifies the decision saying that he wants to make sure that Hendon's 100% ready and doesn't want to put him out there with only two and a half starts under his belt and limited practice. I completely get that. And as a Hokie fan – If I put that weekend aside and I'm looking forward to trying to win the Coastal, I think it's the right call. What's your opinion on that?
1: You know, I don't disagree with not playing Hooker if he's not at 100% because that Notre Dame defense is a pretty vaunted defense, built around a really good pass rush with Okwara and those guys. And they really did put on a pretty good showing. They shut down most of our rushing attack. I'm also not mad at Quincy Patterson getting more looks. I do, however, think if Hooker is healthy enough to play and plays in that game, it's absolutely a game we win. Not to second guess, but it's hard not to, and it's to not think not like that. Quincy
0: either. No. Because he clearly was, was given everything he had, was was competing. It's just one of those things where he's not experienced enough. And that's a pretty big situation to put a guy that's played a half of football essentially.
1: Right. And and not to come at it from a negative outlook, because I am proud of the effort that was put on, but I feel like the offensive coordinator in Cornelson really kind of handcuffed Quincy a little bit with some of the throws and play calls. Uh, they didn't give Quincy a lot of short-timing routes or quick screens, things to build the the rhythm that he needed to really get going against a Notre Dame defense like that that was good all over. And we obviously won some 50-50 balls, and I think that was something we should have done more of. I think as Quincy grows, you're going to see him learn more of that touch because he's got such a strong arm. I don't know that he even realizes how hard he's throwing the ball sometimes. I would wager that it probably feels like the guy's hands are breaking when they catch some of those bullet passes. Like Damon Hazleton on that initial out on the fourth down before we scored our first touchdown uh, in the first half.
0: Right, and you take a deeper dive into Quincy's numbers there. Obviously, the nine for twenty-eight is not something something that you want going into the game for one hundred thirty-nine yards. Did have the one touchdown to Hazleton, one interception. I'm not going to really count that. He's trying to to make a play at the end. You know, essentially throw a hail mary, trying trying to get us into field goal range. Um, he was the leading rusher, so. His strength is obviously between the tackles running. He was our leading rusher with seventy-seven yards. Going back to the nine of twenty-eight, like you said, I feel like they took a lot of shots downfield with Quincy that probably weren't expecting. And I think that comes from the mindset is we're gonna to try to hit some big explosive plays quick that chunk plays that hopefully can, you know, we can score quick, get down the field, move the ball down the field, as opposed to letting him run the offense that we kind of saw. In the North Carolina game, some quick hit plays, some slants, some screens, getting the ball and letting our playmakers utilize space to make some plays. I I felt like we kind of went for home runs with Quincy, which I would not have predicted going in had I known he was going to start.
1: You know, my biggest takeaway from it, and again, it's not a negative outlook. I just, It's just one of those things where you kind of – we expected one thing, and I understand why Fuente went the direction he did. And it hurts a little more. You look at it a little harder because we were so close to winning that football game. Uh, Breaking down some of the numbers a little more, Quincy's accuracy wasn't great and they didn't give him a lot of chances to hit some of the short throws. Uh, But uh, breaking it down a little more, he was the leading rusher averaging about four yards a carry on 19 carries, had 77 yards. But then you go further into it, uh, Deshaun McLeese only averaged two and a half yards a carry. And Dalton Keene averaged one yard a carry on two carries So you kind of saw a dip in production against a good defensive line truthfully, but the running backs didn't have a banner day and it didn't look like the offensive line got a lot of great push with the running game when we went away from Quincy. So there's some give and take there, but overall I'm not displeased with, uh, with the offensive performance. You could see the effort there and you could second guess all day long, but really the highlight of the day for me was the defense and how they showed up. I mean, Ashby, Again, somehow he got left off the Butkus Award uh, list as far as the semifinalists, and I feel like that's an absolute travesty. Guy's averaging close to 14 tackles a game. He's number 10 in the country in total tackles and number 8 in tackles for loss. I mean, the guy is an absolute stud. I just could talk about him all day long.
0: Right, and you look at it from a defensive perspective and you start looking at the numbers, the numbers don't really indicate the job that our defense did – because it's kind of a mixed bag. If you were breaking this down and you didn't watch the game, you would say, well, Notre Dame got 25 first downs to Virginia Tech's 12, so they more than doubled how many first downs we had offensively, and then the total yards, 442 to our 240. But then you dive a little deeper into that, and we were able to hold their rushing attack to 106 yards, even though we only had 101 on the ground ourselves. Then you get into the turnovers, and that's really where we were able – to account or kind of make up the ground for the yardage that we gave up and the first downs that we that Notre Dame were, was able to get, where we have the two in or we have the fumble and the interception. And honestly, we had another interception that was taken away on a bogus, absolute bogus rough in the passer call that should have been a, a second interception there that would have shifted the momentum completely our way. We're up six. We get the ball back there. Who knows? We may go down and put the game away there. But our defense did give up some yards, but they were able to kind of be that vintage Bud Foster defense where they get some takeaways that set us up to have a chance to win the game there at the end. Yeah,
1: yeah. you really can't say enough about how a lot of guys on defense stepped up again this week with injuries and certain penalties. Uh, Like Jermaine Waller got called for targeting late in the game, and it was – I guess by form fitting to the rule, it was the right call, but it was a bogus situation. It was completely not intentional. He wasn't trying to be aggressive in that sense, but I get why it happened. And it was also on that same drive that the RPI or the roughing the passer call was made. It was also pretty questionable if you ask me, but guys like uh, Armani Chapman stepped in and played great once he was ejected. Uh, guys like Khalil Ladler came up again and played big in coverage and things of that nature with uh, Chamari Connor dealing with a hamstring issue. And like Dax Hollyfield pops up on the stat book. He had like six tackles and got an interception early in the game to prevent Notre Dame from scoring on a drive that would have put a lot of momentum on their side going forward. So, again, like you're seeing a lot of youth step up and play well. Uh, Deshaun Crawford stepped up and played well today for on Saturday for the first time in a while. He was healthy and was able to really go full game. So there are some really encouraging things. Uh, It's scary to look forward with Waller being out in the first half, and I know Caleb Farley had an ankle tweak there at the end of the game on that last drive, so it kind of puts things in the air on that. But all in all, it was a pretty encouraging performance, save for one drive on the defensive side of the ball.
0: Absolutely. And again, I don't I don't think it can be overstated how much of a role the turnovers that our defense was able to generate came into play in the game. If, if you look at it, in book completed more passes than Quincy attempted. So, you know, 29 completions. That's a high number of completions. They also threw the ball 53 times. So that was clearly their plan of attack to attack our defense because they kind of saw that we were playing the three man front and not generating a lot of pressure or pass rush with our defensive line. So we were dropping a lot of guys into coverage, and they were kind of able to go underneath that and then hit some explosive plays when the opportunity presented itself. But, again, we were able to hold them to 2.8 yards per rush. I think going into the game, uh, we would have taken that. Even though we were only able to generate 2.8 yards per carry ourselves on offense, I think we would have taken that trade. We'll take the 2.8 yards per carry on our side if we're able to hold Notre Dame's rushing attack to 2.8 because – yeah, their stable running backs are not tremendous, but you factor in Book's ability to make plays with his feet, the 2.8 yards per carry is a pretty big factor in the, in the, and one of the reasons that we were able to stay into the game.
1: Absolutely, and I think it's a big step forward for the defense going into ACC play. Uh, like, Devon Diablo had a career day as far as coming off the, the screen and things that he has really not shown as much influence for. I mean, he had a huge pick in the end zone, Probably, in my opinion, should have been a touchback, but by, again, by the letter of the law with the ruling and momentum and all of that, it ended up on the two. But with that interception, the fumble recovery, that he return for a touchdown. Guys like him are stepping up. And like we talked about last week, they're playing with a lot more anticipation. Uh, Ian Book is a good quarterback by most standards. Um, not a bad quarterback. He's good. as good
0: as any quarterback probably that we're going to see in the regular season from here on
1: out. Exactly. And, yeah, the stat sheet says he threw for over 300 yards and a few touchdowns. But if you sit down and break down that film, the Hokies did a lot to really stifle what they what Notre Dame was trying to do throughout the game. Played great in coverage for the most part. And I, I would have liked to seen more uh, attempt at a pass rush with as opposed to the three-man front. But Bud Foster is a football god by all accounts, so I'm not going to question him. In that situation, I trust his judgment as much as I would anybody on the planet in that situation.
0: Right, and I think one of the big takeaways from this game, if you're going to have one big takeaway that you're going to look to and say, going forward, we're going to hang our hat on what happened this past week, is that the same guys who have been stepping up for the past three or four weeks ever since that Miami game continued to play a big role and show that against Notre Dame who is a step up in competition from a Miami or a North Carolina? Those guys are showing that they can go and compete against the best of the best and make big time plays against big time teams and big time situations.
1: Absolutely. And we go back, we keep going back to the Duke game. If I'd have told you post Duke game that we would be playing Notre Dame to the final play to lose by one point, you probably wouldn't have believed it based on what you had seen to that point. Well, you might have because you're as much a believer as, as anyone on the planet is in the Hokies but your average fan wouldn't have wanted to listen to that. They wouldn't have thought it possible. So these guys continue to grow and really have a great opportunity in front of them going to Wake Forest or going into the Wake Forest game at home and then to the ACC slate really to win out and potentially win the Coastal.
0: Right, and I I think one thing that kind of got overlooked in this game, and we touched on this player last week and their importance, is it's also announced when in the game that Oscar Bradburn is out with a growing injury So I thought John Parker Romo did a great job stepping in, showed that he was more than capable of taking over those duties, and was able to give us good field position and put our defense and our offense in good situations because he was able to to keep Notre Dame at bay from a field position standpoint.
1: Absolutely. We didn't – I mean, you lose a lot when it's arguably the best punter in the country that goes down. you
0: lose the the consistency and the confidence. Right. You know Romo is – capable, but you don't know what you're going to get like you do
1: with Bradford. You can't say enough about Romo stepping up in a situation where he wouldn't have wanted to be, generally speaking, because nobody wants to take over for an all-ACC and potential all-American punter. But he did a great job in windy, cold Chicago. You know, that's, that's a tough place to kick a ball when the weather's fair. So in that situation, coming in and not having much punting experience, probably in life, none at the D1 college football level, he did a, an adequate job, and I can't complain about that at all.
0: Absolutely. Um, so, you know, like we said, lots of positives to take away from this game. Sure, we would like to finish that last drive off on defense, and and, and got come away from South Bend with the win there. But now we're going to look in to this weekend, a, a much bigger matchup. Maybe not from a name brand perspective of the opponent, but certainly in the goals of this team, and and what they hope to accomplish going forward towards the end of the season. And that brings us to 7-1 and one Wake Forest, who by all accounts has probably been much better than people anticipated. I, I think people thought that they would be good under Dave Clawson. You know, finally this is his year to have his, his guys, and he's been able to put his system in for a few years, and he's an incredible coach. He always does more with less, always has. Um, but you look at Wake Forest, They're one of the most explosive offenses, not only probably in the ACC, but from a numbers-wise, maybe not from a talent perspective, but in the entire country. They come in uh, you know, averaging 38 points per game, second in the ACC in total offense behind Clemson. They're led by an explosive quarterback, Jamie Newman, who has 2,059 passing yards, 20 touchdowns, five interceptions on the season. He's also rushed for 305 yards, five touchdowns, and he's the overall ACC leader in total offense per game with 337 yards per game.
1: Yeah, and then they have a running back who's not their leading carrier by any means, but he's averaging seven point one yards a carry. And Kenneth Walker the third, the kid is obviously explosive. His long on the year is ninety six yard touchdown run. The kid can play, and, and then they have two other running backs who have almost a hundred carries, and they're really playing well. They're averaging around four yards a carry. All together, you're looking at three guys that have averaged enough yardage to have almost between 350 and 400 yards each.
0: Right. Well, you're looking at, at a quarterback in Newman and then a, uh, a three-headed attack really of Newman, Kenneth Walker the third, and then the other running back is Cade Carney, who has 383 yards on 99 attempts, three touchdowns. So he's their leading carrier, but he's not the most explosive of the two backs, but he brings kind of a different element than Walker does. And then you look at Sage Sherratt on the outside, 62 catches, 948 yards, nine touchdowns you really start diving into this Wake Forest offense. Yeah, they haven't played the greatest competition, but they're pretty explosive in a lot of areas and are and not one-dimensional. They can beat you in a variety of ways if you're not careful and, and don't take the, don't respect the talent that they do have.
1: Absolutely. Surratt is a guy that is a going to be a tough matchup for anybody in the country anywhere you play. I mean, you look at that stat line, 62 receptions for almost 1,000 yards and nine touchdowns. Most guys in college are lucky to do that in a full season, and he's done it in eight games. So we're looking at somebody that is probably going to be playing on Sundays somewhere. I mean, he's a very effective player. And then not to sleep on a guy like Scotty Washington, who's got 35 receptions for 600 yards and seven touchdowns. He's a little bit more of a burner slot type of guy. He's he's not huge, but he plays really big on the field for Wake Forest. It's it's one of those things where they have a lot of weapons. They can spread the ball around really well. And they've developed a unique timing system in there and a lot of the read option stuff that they'd like to do. You won't see anybody – bury the ball so deep into a read or a midline ISO like you do uh, Newman on a weekly basis, honest to God, it looks like it would be very slow, but the speed of it is very deceptive. They get in and out of the reads really quickly. So it's something that Virginia Tech's going to have to really focus on man football, playing as good assignment football and really dominate their assignments as best as possible. You won't be able to play as many three man fronts. I don't think because Newman and those guys like to do so much out of that read, through the midline iso and things of that nature. So you're going to need big games out of your defensive ends and your linebackers to really own that front and make Wake Forest one-dimensional for this week.
0: Right, and you look at it, um, a Dave Clawson coach team, you know what you're going to get. They're going to be fundamentally sound, they're going to be disciplined, and they're going to utilize the talent that they do have. Um, you, You take a look at his entire career, it's obviously somebody that the state of Virginia is familiar with from his time coaching at Richmond. Then he takes over a Bowling Green program. He has a winning record there. His final season, he's ten and three, seven and one in the MAC. Um, you know, he's been at Wake Forest since 2014. It took him a couple years there to get started, but then you look at the previous years since 2016. He's seven and six, eight and five, seven and six, and now seven and one. So you kind of see that gradual progression. And Wake Forest, for all intents and purposes, is not an easy job in the ACC. You're in the Atlantic. You obviously have the natural disadvantage of being in the same division as Clemson, Florida State, and even a program like NC State, who has had some recent success, putting some guys in the NFL, and a program like Louisville, who produces Lamar Jackson, a Heisman Trophy winner, in the past few seasons.
1: Absolutely. Uh, Wake Forest is one of those teams that's easy to overlook just because there's not a history of dominance in football. They've always been kind of more of a basketball school. Plus, they're surrounded by a lot of talent on the Atlantic side of the Coastal. Looking at potential matchups as far as what we're going to be dealing with, uh, I know multiple Hokies are kind of injured and nicked up. Uh, Caleb Farley is going to be key if he can go. Tamari Connor is dealing with a hamstring issue. And with Waller being out this week as far as with a first-half suspension for the targeting call, you really have to hope that as many guys can go uh, as possible because that receiving core for Wake Forest is trouble. The Wake Forest offense might be, but behind Clemson, the best or at least most efficient offense in the ACC this year as far as statistics go. So you're going to need to see a lot of high performances at home in honor of Bud Foster. It's kind of the theme for the weekend is to Send Bud off on a big high note as far as for a home game like this. This will probably be the last big home game of the season. I mean, every game will be big, but this will be the biggest, a top 25 opponent coming in with a very high-powered offense. And then to flip it on the other side of the page, you have to think about if Hooker can't go or what what to expect if Quincy's going to be the starter, you know, because we're going to have to score points to win this game. It's not going to be a situation like Notre Dame, I don't think. I think Jamie Newman is a much more efficient quarterback than Ian Book, and he's got a bigger collective of weapons. So we're really going to have to score some points to win this game.
0: Right, and and even though Wake Forest comes in at seven and one, and we're sitting here at five and three, I believe in my heart of hearts that our talent is still superior to Wake Forest. We should and have always recruited better than them, and I, I think a good example of that, of course, the the example I'm getting ready to use. Our roster had more talent, certainly, than it does now, or at least more developed talent. I'm not going to predict the future for this, this group. I, I do think the ceiling is high. Uh, there's a lot of young potential. But if you look at the really last good Wake Forest team that played for an ACC championship, Virginia Tech was able to go into Winston-Salem and pretty much manhandled them from start to finish, completely dominated the game. So I I, I want to throw the records out for this weekend. Yes, I think you have to look at it as a respect as a respect to Wake Forest, they are 7-1 and one and have done what they've done. But I think if you were to line the two rosters up and look at them, I still believe we have more talent. So I think that if Quincy Patterson does have to start, I think he his talent level will be superior to what he's seen from the Wake Forest defense, whereas last weekend, that's probably not the case in South Bend.
1: I think it's one of those things where it would be easy to underestimate some of the Wake Forest talent. They do have some very good defensive players. Their defensive line is very efficient. It's one of those things where I think Virginia Tech's approach, especially if Quincy is going to be the starter, the guy we're rolling with, is we should play bully ball. I think we should expect to be big and strong and play a little nasty with these guys and see if we can get the home crowd kind of in it and put Wake Forest in a position that they haven't been in before, because I think the biggest games they've been in, they've won at home. You look at the North Carolina game, a team of similar approach to Virginia Tech, an athletic quarterback, good receivers, a team that can play football. They struggled there towards the end to hold on, but they ended up capping it off. So we have to go in and play a Virginia Tech brand football, the hard, smart, tough. We can't turn the ball over a lot. And honest to God, if we could force a few turnovers and kind of play more vintage Bud Foster defense, get a throwback kind of to that old Wake Forest game, I mean we're, we'd be looking at a very successful day. <clears throat> My expectation is that Hendon Hooker will play, especially with the ACC slate. I think he could have played if absolutely necessary at Notre Dame, and I expect him to do well because he is an X factor with his mobility and his touch on the ball. He's very accurate down the field. And assuming that Trey Turner can go, but it's, I know he's a little nicked up with a, an upper body injury right now, and assuming Hazleton plays and that all the other receivers are healthy and active and that we can get the tight ends back involved, get Mitchell and Keane involved because they didn't have any receptions at Notre Dame, I think we're going to be just fine. It's just a matter of finding that rhythm and really getting back into things.
0: Sure. And and when you go talk uh, about playing volleyball, I think if you go back to the Notre Dame game and you look at the time of possession, uh, Notre Dame had 31 31- Minutes and 12 seconds time of possession. We had 28 minutes and 48 seconds, essentially even. The difference being the final drive that I think it was what 12 plays, 87 yards, span three, four, or five minutes somewhere somewhere in that in that time span. So I think that we need. Wake force is very similar in that they are an explosive offense with some playmakers. So we do need to kind of play ball control early on and kind of fill out their defense and see, hey, can we have some explosive plays on their defense? Can, are, are they vulnerable and susceptible to a lot of chunk plays? Can we go vertical on them, or do we need to be more methodical in our approach and, and run our offense and, and dive deep into the playbook? There, um, I, I do think that Wake Forest, like like you said, that it is easy to underestimate some of their guys because they're not known commodities. That, you know, a lot of two and three star recruits that they've developed, and like we spoke about, Coach Clawson does a great job of developing his guys. Um, it it is a game that I fully expect us to come out and play with our hair on fire, and we and they are honoring Coach Foster, and, and I think that is a big deal. I don't think that that should be undersold in this. I think our defense has already started to build some momentum and gain some momentum, and that carried over from South Bend last week. Going into this week, I think it's going to amp up 10 more notches because they're going to try to send him home with a win on the day that they're honoring him because it, it only would be fitting and, and do justice to the situation. Bud Foster does not need – to lose on the day that they honor him in Lane Stadium.
1: I do think the intensity will be amplified, not just for the team, but for the fans in the stadium. And I fully expect a great home environment for this. I know Wake Forest opened up as a one-point favorite, so it's basically an even keel And split. it is
0: up to three. So, so you know, we're people are still not maybe believing in some of the improvement that they're seeing.
1: Right, and it's easy to, to assume that based on history. I get it. But I think you're going to see a very motivated Virginia Tech football team but specifically the defense. Uh, I think a guy like Alan Tisdale is going to be a key this week, especially with all the read option and RPO stuff that Wake Forest likes to do. I I love Hollifield, but I think Tisdale right now is just more fitting to the system it's going to take to read and and stop those plays to really play those keys because it's a lot of running. It's a lot of covering and eating up space. Uh, At the end of the day, it's going to come down to how many times Virginia Tech can force a turnover or force a punt, I feel like. Uh, Can they get pressure? Can they make plays, put uh, Jamie and Wake Forest in third down and long situations? They were able to do that some against uh, Ian Book, but I think it's going to be even more important in this game to really get after these guys and and try to put some pressure on that offense to perform in a a hostile environment. I
0: I absolutely agree. and I think that that we are going to need to make a play early on that kind of sets the tone that changes the momentum of the game, whether that is a blocked punt, a blocked field goal, you know, an 80-yard pass, a big run, just something that gets the sold-out Lane Stadium crowd on fire early on and and turns it back into, like we talked about, against North Carolina, a vintage Lane Stadium. And I fully expect that. A lot of ACC implications in every game from here on out. I I know – That the way the scenarios shake out, if we were to lose Saturday, if we do beat Pitt, Georgia Tech, and UVA, we would still be coastal champs. But I think everybody would feel a lot better about going into Charlotte as a six and two coastal champion as opposed to five and three. Because if you stay, if you're five and three, then some messy scenarios can get mixed in there. If you finish six and two, you just take care care of business. You you control your own destiny.
1: It's one of the yeah. We we really have to. I feel like this is a must win game if we plan on being there for the coastal. Uh, this It's such a huge momentum thing. And I, the numbers may say, yeah, we could lose to Wake Forest. But I don't feel like anybody should view that as an option. Because losing this game at home would have more implication for the rest of the season than it would just this game. It, it's not like the Notre Dame game. That would be a very diminishing loss to what our end goals are. It would make it more difficult, even if we can win out. I just think it would change some of the demeanor a little bit around the team, maybe not so much within the team. Uh, it's another – Huge point that there are some big recruits coming in this weekend, uh, mostly on unofficial visits. Uh, we've got a guy, his name is Derek Bermudez. He's out of Florida. He's a former commit to Florida State. He decommitted after they fired Willie Taggart, which his blow, his uh, buyout, staggering $20 million, and Florida State was able to crowdfund that through private resources and pay it all off in one lump sum, which is absolutely insane. Hokie fans just think about that with all the talk around Fuente a few weeks ago with his buyout being around $15 million. I mean, that that's just an absurd number. It's crazy to think about, especially in the middle of a season like this, but the powers that be at Florida state are who they are for a reason. Let's leave that to them. But the point is is that we've got some opportunities with some recruits as a result of that. Derek Bermudez, who is actually pretty tight with Tyree uh, Showtime Saunders as everybody is uh, coming to know him. He's one of the most, avid Hokie recruiters that is committed to the Virginia Tech class of 2020. And uh, he's coming up for the Wake Forest game, and then he's going to take an official visit for the Pitt game with Tyrese Sanders. So it's an exciting time. And then uh, we also have a couple of other guys uh, listed here as far as recruits. Jonathan, who do you have your high on? Um,
0: I I think one of the more more exciting offers that's uh, been handed out recently was the Hokies just recently offered Tate Roadmaker – uh, who is currently a USF commit, which yep. is where Tyree Saunders was verbally committed for, for a while. Um, and I've seen that Saunders is already working on Roadmaker.
1: Big athletic uh, kid.
0: Absolutely. Uh, listed as a three-star prospect. I think if you dive a little deeper into the numbers, it's an impressive offer and an impressive kid. And certainly somebody that could be a difference maker. He was 6'3", 190 pounds out of Valdosta, Georgia. Run, he's listed as a pro-style quarterback, but he's running a 4'6", 340. And that's laser time, so you know it's accurate and uh, he actually was offered, I, I believe, yesterday or Monday and has already scheduled his official visit for the Wake Forest game this weekend. Um, I know that we offered a couple other defensive linemen earlier in the week um, that, that kind of had they've been on our radar, but I think Florida State was kind of involved, and now we're starting to get more involved again, as you said, with the firing of Willie Taggart. Just to touch on that. I don't really think that Florida State – I know the buyout was high, but I don't really think they had a choice. I don't think they could afford to fall further down the hole that they were going. Um, I think you can put up maybe with some of the losses early on in the Willie Taggart era, but it was more so the way they were losing those games. And I think if you even look at our own program, Justin Fuente, you can accredit a lot of Willie Taggart's struggles to that first game in Tallahassee last year against Justin Fuente where, for all intents and purposes – we took Florida state to the woodshed for four quarters and made them like it. And um, I think the play that kind of summed up that game was kind of a microcosm of the way that game went was Kuma's long run on, on the pass and Grimsley, you know, has the big block and that was just kind of summed up the way that we, that we, that game went like we dominated Florida state for four quarters. And like I said, made them like it. Um, So, I think from a Florida State perspective, they had no choice but to make a move and to try to make a splash. And I know we've heard Bob Stoops' name affiliated with that opening and some other names where Dave Clawson's name has been mentioned. Um, then you, you've Mike Stoops, Bob's brother. Um, some some coaches are at programs that have really overachieved. And I think if you look at that, that may be a smart route for Florida State to go if they can't land a Bob Stoops or an Urban Meyer or a, a big-name guy like that look at a guy that maybe has done more with less because if you know if Dave Clawson can win at Wake Forest you got to feel pretty certain that if he's got the resources and the talent that's there readily accessible in the state of Florida to him at Florida State that he can do a lot with that and certainly get Florida State to where they're back challenging Clemson for the Atlantic and the ACC championship.
1: Absolutely Florida State's one of those jobs there's so much funding there's so much that goes on down there the scenery is great it's it's been voted one of the top party schools for for years, so college kids are going to love that. It, it kind of sells itself. It's They're a blue blood in a certain sense of their own. It's one of those things you would think almost anybody that was a good football coach would be a good fit for them right now because the recruiting is not going to be as difficult in a situation like that. You just have to sell what's there. Uh, another recruit that I think the Hokies are looking at, I know he's talking about taking an official visit sometime this year, is a guy who's right now a Nebraska verbal commit. His name's Marvin Scott III. Uh, he's 5'9", about 205, runs a 4'5", plays running back. Uh, the kid looks to be quite the physical specimen. He's from Port Orange, Florida, so we're kind of recruiting that hotbed of athletes. Florida boys certainly seem to have a, a good history here at Virginia Tech, guys like Brandon Flowers, Keyshawn King right now. So –
0: and even some under underrated guys in a uh, Luther Maddie, absolutely. That was, you know was offered basically on signing day, and a Daddy Nicholas, same same thing, offer on the same day on National Signing Day. Come to Virginia Tech, Coach Wallace, Coach Foster. Those guys do a great job of developing them, and they become all ACC performers by the time they're out of Blacksburg.
1: Absolutely, and another guy, Isaiah Ford, that all hockey fans are going to be familiar with. And Pollard, Noriel Pollard, and Mario Kendricks, both uh, as impact freshmen from Florida. I mean, that area is a hotbed for football talent.
0: So, right. And really, that kind of started, you know, with Eric Green, uh, a a great hokey corner that was a three star recruit, you know, not a highly touted guy, but comes in that makes a huge impact over the span of his career in Blacksburg. So, I think you're spot on. Virginia Tech has a great track record. Of dipping in, and really any program, of dipping into that talent-rich state of Florida that is loaded with depth. You can find a mid-level three-star guy there, and he's probably equivalent to a four, four- or five-star guy in another state just because he's not as visible due to the amount and volume of talent in that state.
1: I think it comes from an iron sharpens iron kind of thing. They play so much tough football down in Florida. It's a big state. There's a lot of talent, especially in the southern parts. I mean, it just kind of is not an option to not be a great athlete if you're going to be any kind of athlete at all. Uh, it's also something that has crossed my mind this week, and it might just be wishful thinking. It's it's something I think plenty of Hokie fans should think about. There's potential for it. With Taggart being fired, there's a certain running back from the state of Virginia who could potentially look at the transfer portal. There's been some whispers, nothing official, but Kalen Labern – or LeBorn, however you say his last name, could be a potential target for Tech. Because I know a lot of people talked about Virginia Tech being his second choice after Florida State. It was kind of a big league type thing. But you, you end up in the same backfield as Cam Aker, who is by all accounts
0: right. and, one of the and, best
1: running backs in the country.
0: And, and I don't want to speak negatively of his kid's decision because he's a high school kid. and Absolutely He has to not. do what he wants to do. It's his talent. It's his life. And, and whatever he wants to do, that, that's fantastic. But I never understood the mindset of why he wanted to follow a Cam Akers to Florida State where you know at best the carries are probably going to be split 70-30, and that's that's best-case scenario. And he could have come here and been an integral part of our offense for a couple of years and really made a huge difference. And instead now he's stuck on a team. He doesn't know who his head coach is going to be. They've had quarterback issues for a while. You know, Blackman looked like he may be the guy. And then again, in the game last year against us, his troubles really started with Willie Taggers. Then they get Hornibrook to transfer from Wisconsin. It's kind of a rotating, revolving door of quarterbacks. And here's Kalen Labron kind of stuck in the middle, a talented guy with really no role. He, he gets some carries, but Akers is clearly the featured guy, not just on that, in the backfield, but on the offense.
1: It's one of those things, you go back to the game that we played against him in Tallahassee, he made some huge plays. I, I, I felt after that game, even after looking at all the stat lines and everything, he was severely underutilized. You could tell he was absolutely lightning in a bottle and very explosive. Really with the, ball the only chance. guy they had
0: that made a play on either side of the ball. Truth, of the truthfully,
1: truthfully like, there, were, there were some huge plays that he made. So there's potential for him to come back home if that ends up being a, a more tumultuous situation going forward. Obviously, there's no way to know that for sure. We don't know where his head or his heart is at. But I know there was a tweet from his brother uh, a few years ago when we did play them that he said that he didn't – Necessarily, he was kind of in your line, vein of thinking. He was like, I don't, know, I don't understand why he went to Florida State. I think he would have been a star at Virginia Tech, and I think he could be a star most places. It's just a situation where it hasn't panned out for him so far.
0: Certainly, and, and again, please don't take this as that we're of the mindset that great players don't want to play with other great players. That absolutely not. When you're a running back or a quarterback, I think obviously you can split carries and share backfield, and it's totally separate from the quarterback you know, conundrum that teams find themselves in where they have multiple guys who can play at a high level, four- or five-star recruits, and they're looking for playing time. But at the same time, it's not like that Kalen Layburn's option was Florida State or Boston College. You know, Virginia Tech is a viable national program that has put top guys in the league at multiple positions, been a visible program at the top of college football for years. Some of the things we talked about last week. So I think when he weighed his options there, I'm not sure that he did his due diligence, and I hate to say that, of looking at what impact can I have at a high-level program instead of kind of just being overshadowed by a guy that may not be better than you.
1: Well, and that's the thing. I don't know. I'm sure he considered how good Aker is, but I don't know that he didn't think he could outperform it. And, and I think, and I think it's a confidence that recruit always does that. Any great – football player is going to tell you he's the best in the room. That's just a confidence thing. It's not necessarily an arrogance thing. Right. He's going to say that, and he's going to go out and prove it. And you don't know necessarily that he hasn't proven it. Somebody might just be missing it.
0: Sure, but the, you run into a problem with like a guy like Tate Martell who has convinced himself of that twice, and he's been wrong both times.
1: It's one of those things. It's, it's hit and it's miss. It's, it's a 50-50 ball. Some guys – have the dog in them and can be a baller when they need to be, and some guys cannot.
0: And Labor absolutely has shown that he can, which is the unfortunate part of the situation in that I don't feel like the FSU coaching staff has done a good enough job of allowing him to have the opportunity to make plays and be the playmaker he can be. And for his sake, I wish he had chosen a better situation, even if it's not Virginia Tech. Absolutely. For him to take that next step and help him get to the next level. Yeah, I guess if there is a silver lining for him to all this – his body has not taken the punishment, and he hasn't had the physicality level of an every-down back. So he's obviously more than an NFL-caliber player. So when if he gets to the league, he I guess it's fortunate and unfortunate that he doesn't have the amount of carries on his body that a Cam Akers will.
1: It's it's one of yeah, I, I, it's hard to to toe around these situations because as a football high school football recruit from Virginia, you want more than anything for these guys to come to Virginia Tech Absolutely. and be great. But because he's from where we're from, at least the same state, not necessarily the same area, you want to see him do well no matter what. And I think, genuinely, if he does decide to leave Florida State, he will be great wherever he decides to go. I absolutely expect the kid to end up in the NFL. At the very least, as a third down back, kick return type of guy. He's a great athlete. He can catch the ball. He proved that against us with some of the plays that he made. He's somebody that that will find a spot somewhere. It just has to be utilized in the correct way.
0: Right, and we should specify that – for him to transfer to Virginia Tech, he would have to be granted the coach-dismissed waiver. The coach-has-been-fired waiver. Um, I'm not exactly sure what the technical term of that is, but he would have to apply and be granted the waiver, which we have not had great success with in any minute. Who knows what, what, 2.0. what reason the NCAA will come up with this. Nobody knows. But if, if the situation were to occur, we, we don't know but he would be eligible immediately without having to sit out the two years for ACC to ACC transfer rule.
1: Right, and another guy that has been whispered about in some circles, nothing officials out there or anything like that, might be looking to transfer is also a former Virginia star. Uh, Ricky Slade Jr. up at Penn State is not necessarily getting the split of carries that I think he would hope for. There's potential he may transfer, and it was another situation where Virginia Tech was the second choice. And you never want to be – the world's best second choice that's not something anybody wants to be you don't want to be a backup plan but in this situation virginia tech's backfield is not bad by any means but you don't turn down four or five star running back recruits from your home state if they decide that they want to come back home
0: and speaking of home transitioning to another sport last night men's basketball mike young returns home to the NRB to lead the, to lead our Hokies. He's able to go on the road and get a huge 67-60 win at Clemson, a win that most people did not project us to get this early on in his tenure. Congratulations to Mike Young. The win was actually his 300th career win. The Hokies were led by Landers Nolly, who, if you watch that game, as a Hokie fan, you can't help but think what could have been last year with that roster if Chris Clark is eligible and allowed to play with Landers Nolley, just how deep of a run we could have made but we don't want to focus on last year's team. We want to focus on this year's team. Landers Nolly comes out as just an absolute stud from start to finish in the game, made big plays down the stretch when we needed them. I don't think you can say enough about the leadership that Wabissa Beattie, contrary to what, what they think his name is on TV, it's not Wasaba, it is Wabissa Beattie, makes some huge plays down the stretch. Obviously the block towards the end of the game was a game changer then the Hokies are able to get the ball, make their free throws down the stretch. Um, just the leadership that Beattie provided, uh, I think, as Hokie fans, you have to be incredibly proud of him and the maturity that he showed from last year to this year. And I, I don't think it can be understated, overstated just how much of a, how important it is to Beattie that he was on last year's team and learned from a Justin Robinson and a Nikhil Alexander Walker and a Kerry Blackshear and some of those older guys on how, what it takes to be a winner day in and day out and have that winning culture, um, and, and I think he brought that to the table last night. I think if you watch the game, you have to be excited with the style that the Hokies played, um, the half-court sets that they were able to run, um, Mike Young's intensity and passion, that, those are two things that really stuck out to me. Um, I was incredibly impressed, and I, I'm a huge Mike Young fan, and I came away from the game even more excited and impressed than I than I expected to be. Um, P.J. Horn, as a guy who fits Mike Young's system incredibly well, undersized in the middle, made some huge plays. The dunk towards the end of the game, clearly Center top 10 worthy. Uh, got the momentum back for us in a pivotal point where we had just turned the ball over on the press. He was able to get the momentum back for us on the dunk, make the free throw, and the Hokies were able to close out a huge pivotal road win early on in Mike Young's tenure. And Austin, I don't think we overstated what a huge moment this was for the Mike Young era.
1: Absolutely. If you talk to anybody, including myself, coming into the the year for basketball season, the expectations for this particular season are not high for Mike Young because it's the cupboard was kind of left empty in a lot of ways by Buzz Williams. He didn't have a whole lot left for Virginia Tech as he exited the way he did. But Young has bounced back and recruited extremely well. And I think his two biggest gets this year were to keep Nolly and Beattie around uh, coming back to the program because there was a lot of questions about who would be back, who would still be here. And gosh, you can't talk enough about Landers Nolly. This guy is for real. I think he came in at what he's 6'7 now. I think he came in at like 170 pounds as a high school senior. I, they list him now at close to 225. So that kind of physical transformation is going to be huge for this year. There were a lot of questions coming in for Hokie basketball who's going to do this? Who's going to do that? One answer to a lot of questions is Landers Nolly. And, and going forward, it's going to be a lot of fun to watch him grow and play in ACC contention. Uh, and I, like I said, I don't expect a huge banner year for Virginia Tech basketball. This is going to be more of a step stool kind of year. We're going to try to bound forward and get to next year when we've got some really big name recruits coming in, two, four, almost borderline five star guys, top 100 uh, in the ESPN 150. So there's a lot of potential coming in. And that's not to say that this season's a complete throwaway. I don't think that Virginia Tech will lose another basketball game for probably a month. They don't have until you get to the Maui Invitational. I mean, that's where the real competition will pick up. And then you can't say enough about Mike Young personality-wise. Watching him in the post-game interviews, man, it's like Frank Beamer in sneakers. I think somebody coined that term last night on Twitter, and it's great because that's something that we want as Hokie Nation in every sport because Frank Beamer is truly a legend, and to see somebody that loves and cares about people and wants to build the program and the family environment within, it's great to see that in Mike Young.
0: Absolutely, and uh, not only did Mike Young win the game, but then he won the postgame press conference. Um, I I saw a lot of the media, national, local, all tweeting out about how cordial he was, how friendly he was, how inviting and welcoming he was, and what just a great personality he is. And I think if you look at that, even from a recruiting standpoint, uh, the, the, the reason that Mike Young has been able to nab some of those top 100 guys when that was probably the biggest knock on his hire was not that he couldn't recruit, but he's just unproven on the trail recruiting those five- and four-star type guys because at Wofford, he, at Wofford he was limited in who he could go after and reasonably have a chance to sign. And when you're at a smaller program like that, you have to target guys early on that you know are, that you can sign. You can't go after a Zion Williamson at a Wofford because, you know, the, the expectation is he's just not going to sign there. So, you Mike Young is is in new territory recruiting some guys that he has never in his career had a chance to get. And I think recruits are gravitating to that personality and his charm and his ability to relate and connect to the student-athletes.
1: And you really can't say enough about Mike Young's just understanding of how you have to have great people around you to build a valued program. And he's really put some guys in great position to be – to make this program very successful. I mean, you look at his staff, home run hires all the way around, guys like Chester Fraser and Christian Weber who hit absolute home runs thus far as far as recruits go. I know we haven't seen him play any games or anything like that, but for the love of God, I mean, these guys are crushing on the recruiting trail when the biggest thing that everybody was questioning with Mike Young, especially transitioning from Buzz Williams, was what are we going to do recruit-wise? This guy's never dealt with this level of competition – there was a quote in an ESPN article I read when Mike Young hire was made for, uh, was from a Big Ten coach. The guy said that, you know, behind Coach K, once Mike Young gets acclimated and gets his program set up and gets the guys that he wants, you're talking about what could be the second best, potentially the best X's and O's basketball coach in the ACC. And that's not small talk because the ACC is the pinnacle of college basketball. It's, there, there are programs like UNC, Duke, Syracuse pit at times. Lake Forest has been great at times. This is a, pr- a a conference that is very hard to contend in. So that's high praise coming from somebody about a potential head coach. And then with Antoine Jackson and then one a personal favorite of mine, Ace Custis, man. Th- these guys are just great hires, and I really like what Mike Young
0: going to do. Absolutely. And to speak to the ACC, you know, not only is the top talent in the country playing in the ACC, but the league is littered with Hall of Fame all-time great head coaches and a Bayhom, a Krzyzewski, a Williams – uh, and and, and uh, Tony Bennett, absolutely, um, definitely can't forget him. Uh, so it, it's twice as hard to win in that league because you're not only going against the best athletes night in and night out, you're going against the best coaches night in and night out who have those athletes to move around as chess pieces. And I think Mike Young absolutely fits that mold, even though he's never been on that level in in, in those scenarios where he's faced. Night in and night out, Hall of Fame coaches, but he has beaten Roy Williams with a whole lot less talent than he's going to have to work with at Virginia Tech going forward. And I think last night you saw he simply outcoached Brad Brownell the entire game. And you know, selfishly, I'm sitting there watching the game thinking, why in the world? And again, I don't want to disparage a young man's decision. It's his home state. I'm not. We're not here to bash kids in any way. I'm But you can't help but wonder why did P.J. Hall choose to go play at Clemson instead of Virginia Tech. And you look at that from a Hokie recruiting standpoint, if we're able to get the commitment of P.J. Hall, that uh, immediately takes our class to fourth in the country, third in the ACC, which is hilarious in itself, that you would be one spot lower in your conference than than your national ranking. But I I think Mike Young has shown a lot of really exciting things going forward for this program that I'm not sure we're expected when Buzz Williams departed for Texas A&M.
1: I think the, the future for Hokie basketball is as bright as it's ever been, maybe brighter than anyone would have anticipated with the coaching changes and things that have been done over the last year. I think Whit Babcock
0: – He is another home run. I mean, he, 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 he's crushed, run. he
1: absolutely crushed this hire. Mike Young is Blacksburg. He's from this area. I'm telling you – I'm gonna I'm gonna beat Frank Beamer and in sneakers into the ground. That's my new favorite hashtag. I'm probably gonna put it everywhere you can think of. This guy is Virginia Tech. This is where this is home comes from. This is the type of person he's gonna sell Virginia Tech for what it is, more than just a university, more than just a sports program. We're a family of fans, players within the program, coaches, all of that. This and this place, this community can be great, and I think that's what he's going to sell to these guys. And you do have to wonder what was going through P.J. Hall's mind through that, but, you know, you respect his decision because that's where he's from and it's what he's familiar with. It's very close to home. I think he lives an hour and a half away from campus. Sure. Planger, and, and he could and, still change his mind. And,
0: and 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 I think that may come into play. Um, just we were talking about the, the Mike Young factor, that personality and the culture he tries to build with P.J. Hall's dad having played for Mike Young at Wofford. And Clemson getting into the party relatively late, it, you know, it was assumed for for almost a year that it was going to come down to Florida and Virginia Tech. Right, and with his I, sister
1: I, playing on the volleyball team at right. Florida. And
0: then there were some rumblings that once he took his official visit to Florida, Virginia Tech became the leader, but it, the visit almost essentially hurt Virginia Tech because the travel made him realize just how far it is for his parents to get to his games. And being from South Carolina, Clemson does obviously make the games more accessible from a weekday standpoint, no doubt. But, again, from a program standpoint, P.J. Hall is, is a recruit that puts his class over the top with the other two top 100 guys that we have signed, and I'm not sure that he's going to have the opportunities to make that much of a difference at Clemson just due to the amount of talent around him and also due to the fact that if this season does not go well, there is a chance that he would be playing for a new head coach because Brad Brownell's job is anything but safe at the moment. Going back to the Mike Young era, the way it was kicked off, and you saying that we may be better off than we were before, I, 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 I'm i not somebody that begrudges Buzz Williams and, and the decision to go back to Texas a and that he made. And he, obviously, like just like Mike Young is from Radford and from the New River Valley, a chance to come home, Buzz Williams had the opportunity to go back home. I'll never begrudge anybody for going back home. And also, I'll – Hokie Nation, no matter your feelings on a lot of things, you we owe Buzz Williams a ton of gratitude for what he did for our basketball program, even in the fact that we were able to hire a guy like Mike Young. Because I'm not sure that before Buzz Williams came here that the job was truly viewed as somewhere that you could win and win big. And Buzz changed that perception and culture. And you look at the first recruiting class Buzz brought in, Buzz Williams, his coaching staff, and that first recruiting class really – put Virginia Tech in a complete 180 from a national perspective, and you look at the impact that those guys are still having on the national scene, Kerry Blackshear Jr. is now at Florida, you know, people are saying that he could put them in contention to win the national title, preseason SEC player of the year, a guy like Chris Clark, who is preseason Big 12 newcomer of the year at Texas Tech, he'll play a pivotal role on that team. So I, I think that Mike Young is better for the program in the sense that, that he said it in the wrong of times. This is where he intends to ride off into the sunset. We knew that was never the case with Buzz Williams, and there are probably very few programs that Buzz could have been at where you would have felt confident of that. I think Texas A&M may be one of those programs where he will stay the longevity of his career. But I'm not going to say that just out of spite that Buzz Williams did not do a good job for our program because he absolutely did. Um, Probably the best seasons and span of Hokie basketball but I do think that Mike Young is a better fit for Blacksburg and Virginia Tech for the long-term success of the program.
1: Sure, and I think a lot of Hokie fans kind of felt a little jaded from the Buzz Williams situation, but we, I think most of us knew that this was eventually going to be the way it went. But I will credit Buzz Williams because I feel like he put us in a national spotlight being in a game where really one bad bounce and we beat Duke in in the Elite Eight and we, we moved forward. We're talking about a huge tournament game there. He put us in a national spotlight that kind of made us a factor in some of these recruiting situations. And Mike Young took advantage of that because his X factor is his personality. It's one of those things where you you have to give Buzz a little bit of credit for setting us up just as a, a national – I won't say power because we're not there as a basketball school, but people are paying a little more attention to Virginia Tech basketball as more than just, oh, they're uh, a bottom feeder in the ACC. No, there's a lot of potential to be – an upper echelon top-tier team in the ACC up there with your UVA, your UNC, your Duke, teams that have been very consistently dominant at the top of the ACC.
0: Absolutely. And, and Buzz, you know, recruited really the first player probably since Adele Curry that was drafted and is in the NBA and going to have a large impact on on, on the franchise that he's playing with in Kill Alexander-Walker. And all those things that Buzz Williams did for this program, are going to continue to pay dividends for Mike Young and that staff, especially with Christian Webster still on the staff. They are able to utilize the momentum that was built from Buzz when he was on Buzz's staff and continue to carry those relationships over on the trail with Mike Young.
1: You know, speaking of a coaching transition that has gone very well or appears to be looking to go very well, uh, Virginia Tech Wrestling had a huge weekend and an upset of number nine, Missouri. Uh, in a dual meet, man, and they they looked great in a lot of ways. It was very surprising to a lot of people. I don't think anybody expected Virginia Tech to be quite so dominant. They won 29-10 to 10 in a match, and I know a lot of people aren't as familiar with some of the wrestling scoring and things like that. It's not the easiest thing to follow. That's a big win, especially against a top-10 program in the country, Virginia Tech being ranked something like 16th pre this match. The highlights of that, man, I uh, we've had some young guys really perform well. Uh, B.C. LaPrade, he – really got him going early, tied the score up after a, an early loss to Missouri, winning a sudden victory match over Missouri's Jarrett uh, it's a t- It was a top 20 matchup at 157, and LaPrade, man, he just – he really gutted out a win uh, to get a takedown in the last seven seconds and get the hokey momentum kind of going. And then a guy that has just been great for Virginia Tech Wrestling for years now, and David McFadden at 165, put Tech up with a major decision over uh, – Peyton Mako, I think his name is, Uh, It's McFadden's 87th career win. It was a lot of fun to see. And his 19th major decision in his Hokie career, which is huge. It's not something that happens all the time. Uh, Hunter Bolin in a top 15 match at 184, uh, returned to the mat after a redshirt season last year, man, and just really showed a lot of of the promise that we expected from him when he was a recruit coming in. It was tied up, uh, I think, with about a minute to go. They were tied at 9-9, but Bolin was able to ride out uh, the last few seconds of the match and ended ended up with a one-point victory due to riding time.
0: Right, and, and it's always good to see a, a local kid there from you know the, the powerhouse Christiansburg Blue Demon program there pick up a huge win for for the Hokies. That's always kind of like the Mike Young situation. It's always just great to see local guys contributing and, and being a factor for Virginia
1: Tech. Absolutely. You love to see the, the hometown guy do well, and Virginia Tech has a history with Christiansburg wrestling because of Kevin Dresser and the things he was able to accomplish Going over to Tony Roby, and Roby's done a great job continuing the prowess of Virginia Tech wrestling. I think that might, be honest to God, a lot of people would say, "Hey, football, basketball, their national titles, things like that." I think Virginia Tech is the closest complete team to a national title, as far without as,
0: question. I think sometimes that gets overshadowed. Because absolutely, we, we all we all want football, and basketball, and baseball, and, and and all sports, including wrestling, to do well. But I think it's often overshadowed that currently, as it sits. Virginia Tech Wrestling is the program closest and most poised to compete and win a national title um, at at Virginia Tech. And I think if you look at Tony Roby's hire, that's another home run hire by Whit Babcock. And, you know, a lot of times I see on message boards, there fans talk they criticize down the hall hires. And I think that you can't just dismiss all hires of assistants that are on previously successful staffs as down the hall hires. I think it has to be looked and looked at and viewed as an individual case-by-case basis. And this was a case where Whit Babcock looked at the progress of Hokie Wrestling and what Kevin Dressler had been able to accomplish with Roby on his staff and a huge, integral, vital part of what they had been able to accomplish. And Whit Babcock felt confident and handed the keys over to Tony Roby. Tony Roby was able to, to keep the momentum going and hire some outstanding assistants. I mean, we're talking about the cream of the crop nationally as far as the wrestling community goes, and that's really translated into the, to they haven't missed a beat. Sure, they had the transition year, or maybe they weren't quite as good as they had been the year before, but by all intents and purposes, Roby has kept the momentum going and and, and kept that culture going, and their their poised back as national contenders. No
1: question. Absolutely. and You know, wrestling is one of those that's hard to call as a team sport. You absolutely have blue bloods in wrestling like you do any other sport, but it's almost a more dominant culture for these teams, like your Penn States, your Iowa States, your Iowas. These Big Ten schools are just dominant wrestling schools. So Tech, while a lot of people would say they're not super close because it's a difficult culture to compete in, it's the closest that any team at Virginia Tech is right now to a national championship. Uh, potential birth, uh, And then the last real highlight for me of the weekend, Mitch Moore uh, late in the match pinned Alex Butler at 141. He pinned him in 26 seconds, but that wasn't, that's not actually his fastest career pin. Uh, that one came against Prince uh, Princeton's Josh breeding in 19 seconds. So it's an exciting time for Hokie wrestling. It's going to be a really fun season. I think as a team uh, tech moved up, I think five spots in the top 25 for wrestling. They're up to 11 now. And then they get Northwestern this coming Sunday on English Field. They're calling it Matt to the Mound. Uh, they're taking the, the field at about 1 o'clock for a match against Northwestern. Right, which I think is a
0: great concept because not only is it unique, but it's something that will catch fans' attention, just like when they, when they wrestle in the Moss Arts Center. I think that that's something, great promotion by the athletic department and something that catches the fans' eye and may draw them to go because it's just something different. Absolutely. Um, and on top of the fact that, it's a, that Virginia Tech Wrestling is, is really good, um, and, and I think that Robey and his staff have done a tremendous job in keeping wide Dressler built going. And I think you have to be really incredibly proud as a Hokey of that program, because for all intents and purposes, when Tom Brands left Virginia Tech after two years to go back to Iowa, the program was in limbo. I mean, he, he, he took recruits with him, you know, he kind of left before most people thought he would, which of course, the chance of getting to go back to Iowa is, is a huge opportunity you know, you're not going to fault the guy for that. But what Dressler was able to do and re- recover that program and then Ruby's continued to build upon is really nothing short of impressive. And, and I think anybody that says that we're not really that close to winning a team national title may be kind of short-sighted in, in the fact that you have to look at what Mikhail Lewis was able to do last year and break through and win that individual national title and what a remarkable accomplishment that was from his seeding position. And, and I think you have to be really excited about Oki wrestling. Absolutely,
1: it's one of those things, and maybe the most important and most impressive part of this meet with Missouri. But Kyle Lewis has taken a, an Olympic redshirt year; he didn't even wrestle for Tech. And what a recruiting that is! Absolutely.
0: Like, hey, we got a guy that just won a national title.
1: He's going to compete with the best in the world to be at the Olympics, and it's going to be a tough get to get onto that Olympic team. He's going to have to wrestle Jordan Burroughs, who might be the best wrestler to have ever wrestled in that weight class. Sure. But I mean, he's got potential. It's there. The, op- the opportunity is there. He's a junior world champion before this season as last a year. a top-level
0: recruit, how comfortable now do you feel with Tony Roby and his staff that they would be willing to let their top wrestler, who's coming off of a national title, the program's first individual national title, and be comfortable and support him in that decision to do that? I think that's only going to bolster recruiting.
1: It speaks volumes to – I think the honorable nature of Tony Roby to let a kid chase his dream like that because he didn't have to be so cooperative and he was, and I respect that a lot, but it does speak volumes to how much he believes in the, the core of talent that he's got there. And I, I haven't looked it up specifically, but Virginia Tech's in the top five nationally right now with recruiting classes as far as all their weight classes and everything combined. So we're looking at a, maybe the brightest future that we've discussed yet as far as Hokie sports go.
0: Sure. And, and if you look at the, from a recruiting standpoint, not only the success of the program but I'm not, I'm not sure that he gets the national attention or even the local attention that he deserves and should garner. But Tony Roby is just an incredible human being and an awesome guy to be around and recruits will gravitate to him and his, his nature and his personality. So if you get a chance, please go out and support Hokie wrestling all season because you will be incredibly proud of the young men representing that program and the coaching staff. Just, An incredible group
1: of people. As good a program as Virginia Tech has right now, high quality all around. Speaking of as good as it gets, I think now is the time where where we've looked forward to most of this week. We've talked about it a lot. Bud Foster is being honored on Saturday for his illustrious body of work as, in my opinion, and what really ought to be fact in most people's opinion, the greatest defensive coordinator to ever coach college football.
0: Absolutely. I think that goes without saying. I think if you were to poll the, the guys at the top of the profession right now with Bud Foster, and even some head coaches that have that defensive coordinator pedigree like a Jeremy Pruitt that really cut their teeth as a defensive coordinator, or you look at Clemson at a Brent Venables or a Florida at Todd Grantham, a guy who learned with Bud Foster on Virginia Tech's staff and is a Hokie himself. I think all those guys would tell you that Bud Foster is the standard at that position, even though that some of those guys may have elevated themselves into the conversation, certainly not as better than Bud Foster, but as the guys at the top of the defensive coordinator profession, all of those guys would tell you that Bud Foster set the standard and continues to be the standard. Um, I mean, you look at his career, he's a 2006 Frank Bortles Award winner, which goes to the nation's top assistant coach. He's been nominated numerous other times. And honestly, if they were willing to give it to somebody multiple times, he would have won it multiple times. Um, Bud's legacy uh, goes far beyond, you know, you look at the press conference that he gave this week and he, he said that he hoped that his legacy went far beyond, you know, just on field play. Clearly it does. You look at the affinity that his players have for him and and that the program and the fans and the university and Frank Beamer has for Bud Foster. And you can, it's evident that his impact far, far, goes far beyond, you know, just wins and losses and, yards given up, points allowed, and statistics. Bud Foster is a maker of men and and has been the standard for for many years.
1: Absolutely. Uh, And I think the best way to honor Bud Foster tonight is to discuss his greatest hits, so to speak. And we've kind of picked a few out. We've got five that we, in no particular order, would consider his most important and, in our opinion, best performances as, as far as coaching a defense, leading a defense in big games, Uh, And then a few honorable mentions as well, because you can't really limit the impact when you're talking about it that Bud Foster's had on this program. Second only to Frank Beamer in building this program as far as level of importance and in a lot of ways, maybe just as important, like a 1A, 1B situation. Bud Foster is Virginia Tech. Right.
0: And and I think if you're going to split the hairs there, the only reason that you would give (laughs) Coach Beamer the nod of being – Uh, maybe more important to the process is just the simple fact that without Frank Beamer being our head coach, there is no Bud Foster because coach Beamer had coached Bud Foster at Murray state was able to get him in his coaching tree and bring him with him. And I think that's one reason that Bud Foster has been so loyal to coach Beamer over the years. And you never saw him take that next step and be the head coach at a program, which he had multiple opportunities to be just because he loved Frank Beamer and everything that Frank Beamer had meant Not only to Virginia Tech and that football program, but to his life personally and as a man and and as a father figure. So I think if we're going to look at at the top five performances of the Bud Foster era, number one, or not number one, you know, in any particular order, but the first one that we would like, you know, really dive into and talk about is, and maybe the most memorable uh, of the Bud Foster era, the 2006 Clemson game at home in Lane Stadium on a Thursday night. Uh, Clemson, you know, is laden with top talent, guys that would play in the NFL, and a James Davis, a C.J. Spiller. Uh, Tommy Bowden is their head coach. Uh, Clemson is 7-1 and coming into the game. Their offense is clearly their strength. And then, you know, Virginia Tech wins the game 24-7. to Clemson scores in the first quarter. They don't score the rest of the game. The The performance was so monumental, that, and, and this really stuck out to me. I was in the stadium live, but I remember watching – the sports center recap and the interview, the post game interview. When they tried to interview Coach Beamer at the end of the game, he said, "Here's the man of the hour," and he put Bud Foster in front of the microphone, and, and Bud got you know pretty much all the credit for that win, just because what a stellar performance against a high powered offense and opponent in Clemson on a Thursday night in Blacksburg.
1: Absolutely, you're looking at a like statistically, we break this down. Clemson had one of the best two headed monsters at running back that most of us in this generation have ever seen and James Davis and C.J. Spiller. Uh, Both, especially C.J. Spiller, went on to be huge successes for a little while in the NFL, just so much speed. I mean, we're talking about guys – Davis was averaging six yards a carry that year, C.J. Spiller over seven yards a carry. They combined for over 2,000 total yards rushing and something to the tune of like 40 to 45 touchdowns that year. And they come into Blacksburg and Bud Foster's defense – are probably his best defense that he's ever compiled as far as all-around talent.
0: I, I would put that one in the in the 07 defense.
1: Those it, two defenses, right. One right. One they hold them – over 28 rushes, they hold him to 2.9 yards a carry, force two turnovers, man, and just really control the game. Clemson never really had a shot coming in there because right. of the way Bud Foster dialed up that defense.
0: I, I mean, to put it into perspective, I mean, they held him to 80 yards total mm-hmm. rushing –
1: and then, I think, 86 yards passing.
0: 86 passing, you know, 166 total yards. And some people thought Spiller or Davis may go for 166 by themselves. Um, eight first downs as a team. Uh, and then I, I think one thing that really stands out is Virginia Tech, which, of course, this is not on the Bud Foster side, but it's worth noting. Virginia Tech rushed for 224 yards in that game with Brandon Orr. But the point stands that Bud Foster's defense just took the game over. I mean, Clemson's time of possession – was 14 minutes and 50 seconds. I mean, that's almost unheard of today in college football with the number of plays being run and and the volume of offense. So, you know, 4 of 16 on third down. Uh, there the were no four down attempts or conversions. 11 of 28 passing. Uh, I, I mean, just complete dominance in every phase.
1: And, you know, one of the biggest stats that sticks out to me overall in that game, you're talking about guys like C.J. Spiller and James Davis who were known for huge plays, especially Spiller. His long on that year, I think, was over 80 yards, and he was consistent. He, he was top amongst the top in the country where he runs more than 20 yards. The long of the day, as far as carries goes, C.J. Spiller took one for 13 yards, and it was an absolute fight to get that 13 yards, I remember, the play. So it's nuts to think about arguably the best big playbacks in the country at the time, Uh, like rival to somebody like Reggie Bush with big plays as far as what they were capable of to see Bud Foster's defense the way he coached him to limit the big play, keep everything in front of him, and really just execute well. Uh, The next biggest game, not necessarily in any particular order, but one that sticks out the most to me because it was such an upset and one of the biggest wins in program history, you go to 2014 in the horseshoe at Ohio State. In a game where uh, Virginia Tech was not favored at all uh, coming into the horseshoe at Ohio State, uh, the defense really showed up. And, you know, the stat line is a much more telling thing than the score line itself. It says we gave up 21 points. But looking at how talented that offense was with guys like J.T. Barrett and guys like Ezekiel Elliott and Curtis Samuel and Michael Thomas, the future NFL stars, uh, Virginia Tech's defense came out and was just on fire. with like 10 total sacks, ended up with three turnovers. I know Kyshawn Jarrett had two, and then uh, Deuce Riley took a pick six back to end the game and, and really put everything on ice. I think he ended up with a personal foul penalty because of that and had to run a little bit. I know he told the story about Frank Beamer, but Bud Foster's defense came out and played with their hair on fire and led Virginia Tech to one of the biggest upsets in the history of the program.
0: A- absolutely, and I think one of the takeaways from that game, if you watch it, that speaks to the greatness of Bud Foster is his ability to put guys in the best possible situation and succeed. If you look at guys that made huge plays in that game, really Deion Clark took the game over from the linebacker position, had multiple sacks, you know, was a force in the middle. Derek DiNardo was a key contributor on a couple sacks. And then, like you, Donovan Riley, you spoke about the game-clinching pick six. All you know, good football players, solid hokies, guys that we you know that that we love, but by no means are the NFL stars. And and, you know, you probably look at a couple of those guys, and that's really that game is the most impact they had in a hokie uniform. And Bud Foster has made a career and a living out of not only coaching the Kendall Fullers and the Xavier Davies and the Vince Halls and the Brandon Flowers, Macho Harris, those type guys, but maybe even more so taking those three-star mid-level prospects and coaching them up and and just turning those guys into sponges for the knowledge and the wisdom that he has and, and turning those guys into football players that make plays that maybe they weren't expected to make when they got to Blacksburg.
1: Absolutely. I mean, you look at the stat line a little closer. Like JT Barrett was the leading rusher for Ohio State, and if somebody would have told you that going into that game, they probably would have sat down and just hung their head because it's an unbelievable thing. He went for 24 carries, only had 70 yards, averaging less than three yards a carry. Biggest stat line that jumps off in the rushing stat category, Ezekiel Elliott rushes eight times for 32 yards. Yay had a touchdown, but it wasn't a majorly impactful thing because the offense was able to respond pretty well. It just shows how truly talented this Ohio State team was. They ended up handing a very vicious loss in the college semifinals to Alabama and then handle Oregon in the national title game. It was never really a threat. I mean, And they were physically brutal to a lot of these teams. So for Tech to have matched up as well against the talent that they did in Columbus that day speaks volumes to Bud Foster, the strategist.
0: Absolutely. And you look at it from a chess match perspective. You know, Bud's playing chess with Urban Meyer and a head coach who's had a lot of success offensively and an offensive coordinator in Tom Herman who is nationally recognized as an offensive guru and one of the top minds in all of college football – So not only is he playing against some of the best players or coaching against some of the best players in the country, he's coaching against some of the best coaches who have some of the best players in the country, which it takes that up another level. And obviously he has a Hall of Fame head coach himself that he's working with, but it just speaks to the point of how Bud is able to to utilize his talent to execute a game plan.
1: Absolutely. If you look at that game on paper going – into Columbus that night, Tech was far and away the underdog in regards to talent. They'd never even been to the horse. Exactly, it was the big at that time, the most watched college football game in history, and most attended. Right. Uh, it's one of those things where you really have to look at Bud Foster as the great equalizer amongst men in that situation.
0: A- absolutely, and to be able to hold that offense to 327 total yards with those with those weapons is it, not a ton. You know, Ohio State only had the ball for 26 minutes, 19 first downs, and Virginia Tech's defense was able to generate three turnovers. Uh, 19 first downs may sound like a lot in today's college football. It's really not because there's a high volume of plays being run. Offenses are so much quicker to the line to snap the ball. It's just a different tempo. And really, Virginia Tech was able to hold Ohio State's offense at bay pretty much the entire game and able to come up with big plays when they needed it. it just seemed like in that game, Every time Ohio State tried to get some momentum or gain the momentum back, Virginia Tech was able to make a, a big tackle for a loss or a sack or generate a turnover, create a turnover, or get a big, a big four or three and out and, and get the ball back to the offense.
1: Absolutely. Uh, it really, I, mean, I just can't talk enough about how Bud Foster executed that day with his game plan. And it gave Frank Beamer a, a great start to the 2014 season. And and you look at it; you're talking about beating, being the only team to defeat the 2014 national champions. That game, I feel like, would have to stick out for any Hokie fan, especially the younger ones in these more recent generations.
0: Right, and, and I'm sure Bud were to have a list, and, and he may not because he he probably views all of his, you know, all the games equally, just out of the love and affinity that he has for his players. I won't say all the games, but but a lot of them, and especially at that level. The coaches value and cherish every win so much that they don't really distinguish one above the other. But I'm sure that game would be on his list if he were to give us one. Uh, I I think another win and moment of the Bud Foster era that you point to is probably the win that most Hokie fans and and the coaches uh, of that era themselves would identify as the game and the win that really jumpstarted Virginia Tech's program from a national perspective and opened the door for us to to get to land a recruit like a Michael Vick and later a Kevin Jones, and that's the 1995 Sugar Bowl against Texas in New Orleans. Um, the Longhorns come in, you know, they're 10-1-1 going into the game. Virginia, or actually, excuse me, 10-2-1. Um, that's before they counted the, the bowl wins and losses um, on the, on the final record. Uh, Virginia Tech comes into the game as a 10-2 Big East champion um, after starting off the season 0-2. And losing their first two games of the season. Uh really, Virginia Tech's defense dominates from start to finish in this game.
1: Absolutely. Uh, you know, it was a tight game going into halftime in '95, and I didn't get to watch it live. Of course, I was about one year old at the time, but I've watched the highlights and re-watched the game film plenty of times. And you could just tell there was a certain level of tenacity that Virginia Tech was playing with on the defensive side. You could tell that. Like, ticket sales were not great for that game. Nobody really expected Virginia Tech to even be competitive. It was one of those we were absolutely viewed as an underdog. But then in the second half, to hold Texas scoreless in the second half, score 21 unanswered, Uh, their quarterback, James Brown, ended up 14 of 36 that day for 148 yards, which is truly nothing for that sort of offense. Had three interceptions and did throw one touchdown. Big stat that sticks out to me, he rushed six times for negative 43 yards. Because at the time, sacks were counted as runs for negative yardage. So Virginia Tech's defense absolutely abused him. And then a name that a lot of people that are football fans will recognize, Ricky Williams was on this Texas team, rushed for 62 yards on 12 carries, no touchdowns. So, I mean, how how huge of a stat is it to be able to say, you held one of the greatest running backs to ever touch a college football field to so 62 yards on 12 carries?
0: Right. And, and in the game, you know, Virginia Tech's defense is able – to, to get three interceptions, and the last touchdown of the game is a defensive touchdown scored by Jim Barron on a strip sack of the quarterback. Um, and, and I do apologize. Uh, looking back at it, Virginia Tech was 9-2 entering the game. They did count the bowl win. I was thinking they, don't, they didn't count bowl stats before like they do now. Uh, they, did, they do count the win, obviously. So Virginia Tech was 9-2 going into the game, and Texas was 10-1-1. Um, but, yes, this game, I remember being a kid sitting sitting with my dad watching this game, and really Virginia Tech you know, had gained some momentum with some bowl, with some bowl appearances in the previous two seasons, but winning the Big East title, being on a national stage as a young kid from this area, you're proud seeing your hometown university just make an appearance at that point. And really that game served as a catalyst for what we – No as Hokie football now, today, and and no one could have predicted after that night really what was to come for the Frank Beamer era and for years to come from Hokie football.
1: Absolutely, and a fun fact for me personally and a lot of Hokie fans, a guy that went on to be a great coach for DBU and put some great defensive backs into the NFL, Torian Gray had two interceptions in that game. So it just speaks, again, to Bud Foster's carrying over of that family environment and graduate assistants and coaches and his coaching tree because Torian Gray went on to be a
0: great secondaries coach. Right, and, and, you know, not just to credit Bud with this, but really this performance is a vintage Beamer ball performance. You know, there was a special teams touchdown, a defensive touchdown, and just complete dominance from start to finish and and, and from a physicality standpoint. So this definitely ranks up there as one of the greatest performances Performance is not just in Hokie football history, but by Bud uh, Foster-led defense.
1: And it goes without saying, uh, another bowl game from the the 90s that really gets viewed, I think, by a lot of people as something that started something special in Blacksburg, the 98 Music City Bowl against Alabama. Uh, We talked about this a little bit last week. The biggest bowl loss in Alabama history, Virginia Tech comes in and wins in a dominant 38 to seven game. Another game where Virginia Tech's just not viewed as much of a threat because being in the big East and they don't play a lot of great talent and things of that nature, they were viewed as underdogs and Corey Moore comes in and just had an incredible game played out of his mind, ended up with a sack, one tackle for a loss, a block punt and a forced fumble and ended up winning defensive MVP in that game. And I know he's one of Bud Foster's old
0: favorites. Absolutely. And, just to put it in perspective, how dominant how dominant the defense was in this game. Al Clark was the, was the starting quarterback for Virginia Tech. He threw for 71 yards in the game. Shireen Stith was the team's leading rusher with 71 yards, and Ricky Hall led the team in receiving with 20 yards. So, obviously, not overwhelmingly productive on the offensive side from a standpoint of a high number of yards. Uh, this is another game I remember being, being a young kid and watching this game. And just to see Virginia Tech playing Alabama on TV and dominating from start to finish was really something to behold. And I know that guys that I've talked to through the years on the coaching staff and, and on the various staffs associated with Virginia Tech football have talked about really what a surreal moment it was standing on the field in Nashville and looking across the field and seeing Alabama on the other sideline and knowing that you had the better team that day and just – the whole atmosphere of that bowl game. And I know that a lot of guys and players, staff included, that were associated with the Music City Bowl, look at that as one of their best memories of Virginia Tech football and one of the best experiences that they've had, not only within Virginia Tech football, within their life. And I think anytime that you can beat a program with the name recognition and national brand of Alabama, granted they were coming off probation, you know, they're not the Alabama we know now still with the history of, of Bear Bryant and just the mystique of Alabama. I think I think that was a great win that built momentum going into the 99 season where Virginia Tech ultimately would play for the national championship.
1: Absolutely. I think it was a huge building point for all of those guys that made it from 98 to 99. And, you know, you can't forget Sean Alexander was on that Alabama team. one of the better running backs in their history and ended up being a, an extremely productive running back in the NFL, led the Seahawks to an almost Super Bowl in the mid-2000s. I mean, to hold him to something to the tune of 21 carries for 55 yards and, and no touchdowns, you're really saying something when you're talking about a potential Hall of Fame running back uh, as far as the, the college football Hall of Fame goes. And then to force Andrew Zowell, Alabama's quarterback, into a, a just shy of or just over 50% passer completing one touchdown but four turnovers. He threw inter- three interceptions and fumbled the ball at once, and – really was just splayed out and kind of tortured by that Virginia Tech defense.
0: Right. And, and the performance not only, like you spoke, uh, handed Alabama the the second worst losing margin in a bowl game, according to Hokie Sports. Um, it was also the largest ever bowl winning margin margin in a bowl victory by Virginia Tech. So that, that's really something that, that's incredible if you, if you put those two together.
1: Absolutely. You can't overstate the importance of a game like that with all the experience, the guys like Corey Moore and John Engelberger got going into the 99 season with Michael Vick coming in and
0: leading that team to a national title berth. Right. And then I think um, if you're going to point to another game, the the 2004 Miami game in Coral Gables between Virginia Tech and Miami, uh, which essentially ended up being a de facto ACC championship game in Virginia Tech's first year in the league. Uh, Virginia Tech is able to win the game 16 to 10 and really catapult Virginia Tech's program into ACC stardom and lead us into that era where we dominated the ACC o- o- over a period of time. You know, really, we were at the top of the league unchallenged. And, and that game really felt like where we made our authority or our presence known uh, within the league and that we were here to be a big time player and in a season where like we touched on last week, we were projected, you know, to finish somewhere between six and eighth in the league. And there are a lot of prognosticators because they didn't respect the big East, which I always thought was unfair because, you know, Miami, Pitt, West Virginia, some of those programs play pretty good football. I never really understood why everybody thought it would be such a transition to the ACC, but in a year where most people thought we would struggle in our inaugural season, in the ACC, we go into Coral Gables, at the end of the season and, are ACC champions.
1: Absolutely. And, you, and it's going back to a time when Miami was very much still considered a power in a lot of ways. I mean, you're talking about a guy like Frank Gore, who is in the top three all time in the NFL now for rushing, a career rushing yards. I mean, he averaged three and a half yards a carry against this Virginia Tech defense, 13 carries for 46 yards, no touchdowns, and was really just choked up all day long. Virginia Tech's defense showed up, and then Brock Berlin – who was held to a lower than 50% passer completing percentage, again, only threw for 139 yards and threw an interception, no touchdowns. So you're talking about a team here that is littered with talent in Miami, and they go for like 207 total offensive yards. I mean, that's an insane number, and I remember watching this game as a kid. This is a very formative memory for me. You're talking about That last possession, because it it was an absolute defensive battle. Brian Randall and the guys never really got going, except for a few big plays. Virginia Tech's defense had to win this game and and prove a point. There were a lot of reporters that were just very disrespectful, said that Virginia Tech would never win an ACC title. They'd get run out of the conference. And I remember the last drive, uh, four plays in a row, the defensive line just comes up huge. Uh, I remember Daryl Tapp. Two plays in a row, third and fourth down, ends up batting a ball down at the line of scrimmage to end the game and really just cement themselves as a dominant force on that field and in the ACC. And it really set the table for what Virginia Tech was going to run off in the next few years.
0: Uh, Absolutely. And, and, you know, in that rivalry of Virginia Tech Miami, there have been a lot of great games like we spoke about last, last week. Um, I think this is one of the better ones because of what was at stake. I mean, plenty of times they played, and, and sure, it had Big East implications, uh, national implications. I think that's often overlooked sometimes that Virginia Tech and Miami usually within that that game within the season had national implications for somebody. Um, and I, I think if you look at the the, the rivalry, the last game we're going to touch on here is uh, in the Bud Foster era is the 2003 Miami game in Blacksburg, where Miami was considered to be probably the best team in the country on paper. Uh, they come into Blacksburg, Virginia Tech is reeling from a loss the previous week in Morgantown, a game that they probably feel like they should have won. Miami comes in; I believe they're on a 36 game, is it 36 game win streak? Um, but obviously they're coming into Lane Stadium, and, and more, you know, at, at the height of its, the height of its intimidation factor, you know, Lane Miami comes into Lane Stadium in 2003 when that's when Lane's rocking and really what where it's building its national identity is what we know Lane Stadium to be now. And the Hokies win 31 to 7 and Miami really is not able to get much going on offense. It, it, and they win a game by that margin where the offense really only provides Virginia Tech with minimal output, 219 total yards of offense.
1: All right, so you're talking about a game where the, I believe yeah, the first two touchdowns that Virginia Tech scored were defensive touchdowns. If you've been a Hokie fan for as long as we have, you'll remember this game is Bill Roth's favorite, one of my personal favorite Bill Roth moments. Give it to me, Roscoe. Give it to me. Uh, D'Angelo Hall strips Roscoe Parrish and takes the ball back for a 33-yard touchdown. And if you were lucky enough to be there, Lane Stadium erupted. This was It's one of the loudest moments I personally heard Lane Stadium. Maybe it just sticks out to me as a child because I was a kid when it happened. It was an iconic moment in Hokie history, especially if you were lucky enough to have the Bill Roth broadcast going on behind you. Then Eric Green picks Brock Berlin off and takes him back for six on a 53-yard touchdown. So just offhand, you've got a 17-0 lead going into the third quarter because of the defense. And then Miami really only scores in garbage time, less than eight minutes left. Uh, on a nine-yard touchdown after a really hard-fought drive from their backup quarterback. It was really a far and off decided at that point. And Tech goes on to win a 31-7 game. In one of Bud Foster's truly iconic moments, man, that defense just showed up and made some incredible plays for him.
0: Uh, absolutely. I mean, you look at the box score, and I think a lot of people have probably forgotten this, Virginia Tech forced seven fumbles in this game. They did only recover one. But still a 4-7 fumble shows that your defense is flying around and active and in the right spot. They were able to get three interceptions for a total of four turnovers in the game. The the Eric Green play really sticks out to me. I remember him jumping that route. Brock Berlin, you know, struggled the entire game. Uh, And then Eric Green taking the pick six of the house was a huge momentum play. I believe at the time it made it, yeah, 17 to nothing. And you really started to get the feeling that Virginia Tech was going to roll Miami in Blacksburg. And – That Miami team was a typical Miami team littered with tons of NFL talent on both sides of the ball. You look at a Kellen Winslow Jr. at tight end, a Santana Moss at wide receiver. So lots of impact guys that would go on to have successful and even really good NFL careers are on that team, and they were pretty much just kept in check the entire game.
1: Absolutely. And then uh, a little-known fact, a lot of people forget about it. Eric Green also blocked a, a field goal early on in the first quarter, and it was the 101st under Frank Beamer. I know special teams more, was more Beamer's thing, but it's one of Bud Foster's favorite guys. If you talk to him, Eric Green was a great cornerback, made a huge play there. So his influence shows up all over the field, and it really ruined Miami's hopes at a potential national title berth that year because everybody looked at them as an unstoppable force going into that game.
0: Right, and really the statistic that sums up the dominance, and we really don't need to say any more about this game, is Virginia Tech completed two passes the entire game. And one thirty-one to seven. So if somebody had told Virginia Tech going to the game, passing, you're going to be two of eight for 44 yards, one touchdown, one interception, with uh you know the two-headed monster of Brian Randall and Marcus Vick playing. They did rush rush for 175 yards on 41 carries with Kevin Jones and a combination of Vick and Randall running from the quarterback spot. But anytime you're playing a team of Miami's caliber and you go two of eight for 44 yards passing the odds are you're probably not going to win at all, and you're definitely not going to win 31-7. to
1: 7. It absolutely speaks to the dominance
0: that Bud Foster has displayed throughout his career.
1: You know, there are a few other statistics that stick out as far as since Bud Foster took over in 96. Uh, since 1996, when he took over as the sole defensive coordinator, Virginia Tech leads the nation, in, and these stats are accounted for before this season, Uh Leads the nation in sacks and interceptions. Over 856 sacks, or right at 856 sacks. So, Saxburg is alive and well in his 30-year-plus career, and then 380 interceptions. Uh, Under Bud Foster, uh, since 2000, Virginia Tech has 22 shutouts, and that's second only since 2000 to Alabama. And a lot of those have come against very weak and cupcake teams, as Alabama has used them as tune-ups in their reign of dominance here lately. Uh, Virginia Tech's defenses have led in major categories nine times, been number one in the country nine times under Bud Foster, and been top five. And this is staggering to me 44 times. Bud Foster is a legend in right. all regards.
0: Like, like we said, he he is the standard. He, he set the standard. He's created it, and he's maintained it. And, and there's no one associated with college football that would tell you any different. Coach, player, commentator, fan, doesn't matter. That, he's universally respected. And I, I think that – as fans, we need to appreciate his loyalty to the program, not only for the times that he could have left to become a head coach, but for the twice as many times beyond that that he could have left to go be somebody else's defensive coordinator. Uh, you know, and, and and it speaks to his character and who he is as a person that he was able to stay during the Fuente era and work with those guys and be a part of that culture and continue doing what he's always done. It speaks to his love for Virginia Tech and the area, the area itself.
1: Absolutely. Bud Foster is Southwest Virginia, is Blacksburg, Virginia, is Virginia Tech football, and really Virginia Tech is a university. His character speaks volumes beyond just on the football field. And I 100% believe that he will be the first assistant football coach elected into the the college football. Absolutely. I think there's no question.
0: And and if he's not, they should shut it down. Absolutely. And that's just the the plainest way that you can say it. And, you know, Bud Foster – a Hall of Fame coach, but even beyond that, a Hall of Fame human being. And the countless lives that he's touched beyond football, not just from a player perspective, but a coaching perspective. You look at his coaching tree, there's tons of guys on other staffs that he that he mentored or played played under him. And just the impact that he's made in the community with his Lunch Pell Defense Foundation and all the work he does there. You know, Bud Foster sometimes probably doesn't get the credit it sounds crazy, but probably does not get the credit that he deserves.
1: And I think he prefers it that way. He's always been somebody that will shun the the spotlight and put it on somebody else when he gets the chance. Uh, one, one of my favorite Bud Foster memories is off field. It was after uh, the Rutgers bowl game. Anton Exum was kind of getting lit up by some of the reporters, and Bud Foster really went to bat for Exum. And that stood out to me just because it was, it was a game we won, but Exum struggled in coverage, and it was just not a, a great day uh for him and bud foster really went to bat for him i won't repeat his quote because there was some uh, pretty uh interesting language used but if you know bud you you love bud for what he is and for what he does for his
0: players right and and you can it's evident how hard those guys play for him week in and week out and and i think it's important and and hopefully this goes without saying but this weekend we need to show up in lane stadium and i think it's great that the game is sold out and i you know i Hopefully the team's improvement is the largest reason for that, but I, I like to think that Bud Foster, the fact that they are going to honor him has a large part to do with that as well. Um, we need to be in Lane Stadium. We need to be loud. We need to be that vintage hokey crowd because just like the players feed off of our energy, Bud feeds off that energy. And, it, you know, no, everybody likes to be recognized for their work and feel like they're supported. We need to be We need to be in our seats early. We need to get there. We need to be as loud as we can, and we need to help send Coach Foster, not out the right way, but out the right way on the day they're honoring him and recognize that we only have two more opportunities to to watch Bud Foster and what the greatness that is Bud Foster as a defensive coordinator two more times in Lane Stadium.
1: Absolutely. I think it's very important that we cherish these games, these last four guaranteed games, and then if there's a conference championship berth or in a, a bowl game, all of that will come later in discussion. But we, we need to be there for Bud because – I think this game, these games are every bit as big as Frank Beamer's farewell season a few years ago, and we need to make it evident how much we we admire Bud, how much we love Bud. I feel like he is a huge reason that any of us are where we are as Hokie fans today. I don't think any of us would have stuck around and been as devoted as we are without what he has accomplished and given us to be uh, proud of. You know, I, that lunch pail defense mentality. It's it's very blue collar. It's very uh, accurate. Very much
0: fits our area.
1: Yeah, the Southwest Virginia is blue collar. It's not. It's not always pretty. It's a lot of hard work. We're gonna show up. We're gonna get the job done. And Bud Foster has been the human embodiment
0: of that lunch pail defense attitude. Uh, absolutely. And um, I think from as fans, we we sometimes get spoiled and we don't appreciate what's right in front of us. And, and of course, we appreciate Coach Foster and what he's meant to our program. But when you, when you talk the Mount Rushmore. We've been we've been blessed not only to have the two guys, you know, in our generation that would be on the Mount Rushmore of Virginia Tech football and Frank Beamer and, and Bud Foster. Those guys are on the Mount Rushmore of college football. I mean, they are the cream of the crop at their profession and in their profession and universally respected. And I think that it's pivotal that we that we show up and, and let Coach Foster know what he's meant, not only to the university and to the football program, but to Southwest Virginia.
1: And it goes without saying that just how proud I personally am of everything that Bud Foster's accomplished, and that comes—that probably sounds funny coming from a 25-year-old talking about somebody who's been coaching football for longer than I've been alive. But in meeting Bud Foster and getting to interact with him, because he's very active in the community, he loves to—he's actually got a house in Draper. You know, he—he's all over the place. He loves to fish. Bud Foster is as good a human being as he is a football coach, and he's somebody that, on a personal level, I value very much as a person just in getting to meet and interact with him and have a relationship with him at different times.
0: Right. And with that being said, you know, get to the game Saturday, be supportive, be loud. Let's, let's get these guys to another crucial critical ACC win as we move towards our goal of winning the Coastal Division and and taking our best shot at Clemson, hopefully in Charlotte. Um, There's a lot of exciting things taking place within Hokie Nation, get to the game, support the basketball team, the wrestling team, all the programs that are being successful or, and, and that, are, that are going right now, um, it's an exciting time to be a Hokie. Uh, thanks for joining us this week. We'll be back with you next week. I'm Jonathan Hagee. And
1: I'm Austin Eats. And until next time, you're now exiting the Terror Dome.